Hello and welcome to the fifth episode of my podcast series, Financial Crime Matters. I'm Kieran Beer, Chief Analyst for ACAMS, the world's largest member organization for anti-financial crime professionals. And in this series, I speak to the thought leaders in the fight against financial crime. In this fifth podcast, I speak to Tom Keating, who is the Director for Financial Crime and Security Study at the Royal United Services Institute, or RUSI. We speak about the threat from weapons proliferation and the financial component in weapons proliferation. Here we go. Tell me a little bit about RUSI, the commitment on weapons proliferation and what you're doing now. You're not proliferating weapons, anti-weapons proliferation. No, that's right. That's right. So I joined RUSI in 2014 and teamed up with the nuclear team at RUSI at the time because we all agreed that there was an element missing from the effort by the international financial community to disrupt the financing of WMD programs. So in 2012, the Financial Action Task Force, which I like to think of as the most powerful organization no one has ever heard of, which is the global standard setup. The most powerful organization that sort of has no power, but really... Well, I think it has a lot of power insofar as if you don't follow along with its recommendations, you find yourselves in all sorts of hot water. Been around since 1989, but really came into its own following 9-11 with the addition of terrorist financing to its money laundering or its anti-money laundering mandate. And then in 2012, proliferation finance, countering proliferation finance, was added to its roster. So there are now three legs to the FATF stool, anti-money laundering, counter-terror finance, and counter-proliferation finance. And all of this needs to be seen against the backdrop of the concerted effort, the increasing effort, A, to bring Iran to the negotiation table back then, and also, of course, the growing threat posed by the WMD programme of North Korea. And the belief was, by targeting the financial infrastructure around WMD, around the delivery systems, the procurement systems, that one would be able to strangle the North Korean weapons programme. Of course, that isn't really what happened. But anyway, that's what we've been trying to do since 2012. And that's what we started to look at at RUSI in 2014 and notice that notwithstanding the commitment of the international community, precious little was being done. So our first paper back then we called Out of Sight, Out of Mind, because in our view this was an issue that whilst the international community had coalesced around it, they had basically gone home and forgotten to do anything about implementing. We're talking that anti-proliferation of weapons is often tied to sanctions. Where do those two fit in? The international community in the form of the UN Security Council has passed sanctions resolutions related to North Korea's WMD program, progressively since the mid-2000s. And what the FATF recommendations say, basically, is that under Recommendation 7 of the 40 recommendations, countries must implement targeted financial sanctions, as approved by the United Nations Security Council, without delay. So they need to give effect to those decisions in New York at the UN in whatever country it is around the world without delay. That means kind of overnight or ASAP. At a very minimum, uh, countries should be doing that in order to be compliant with Recommendation 7. And what, again, we found from our research, what mutual evaluations, the once every seven to ten year evaluations that the FATF does of countries, confirms that even that basic, simple step is not being implemented by a good many countries. Then FATF considers effectiveness. Are you not only technically having the laws and so on, but are you actually putting them into practice? That's immediate outcome 11 in the case of proliferation finance. And again, 
many, many countries have very low effectiveness. So the bottom line is the issue remains out of sight, out of mind. And so our research at RUSI since 2015 has endeavoured to A, highlight the gaps, and B, make proposals as to how those gaps can be filled by governments and their private sectors, and increasingly other sectors that are captured by UN North Korea sanctions as those have expanded. Sanctions that are in place, what can make them effective? I sometimes wonder whether a discussion about the effectiveness of sanctions is really worthwhile because they're here, they're the only tool short of war, and do we really want to go to war with North Korea? So in a way, we're going to try and use them. The question is, as you rightly say, having decided to use them, how do we ensure that they can be as effective as possible? And that's really what the UN Security Council has tried to do repeatedly, particularly since sort of 2016, 17, is keep identifying ways in which North Korea is raising revenue. And remember, the view of the international community really is any revenue raised by North Korea, whether it's through the sale of fish, whether it's through providing training services to police forces in sub-Saharan Africa, any revenue is deemed to be supporting the regime's WMD programme. As time has gone on, and as the international community has identified different ways in which the North Korean regime is raising revenue and different ways in which they are circumventing restrictions to source the material they need for their weapons programme, to source their energy they need for their energy needs, oil and, and the like, the sanctions have been tightened and adjusted and have morphed to try and reflect those evasion techniques that North Korea is using. And so inevitably for financial institutions, for compliance officers, for insurance companies, for commodity brokers, everybody who is captured within the ambit of these sanctions, it's becoming increasingly complex. You've got to be looking over your shoulder to the left, to the right all the time, because it's no longer just looking out for Mr. X or Mr. Y on a screening list. It's looking out for all the activities that might be going on amongst your client base. Where are we going with anti-proliferation with Iran as opposed to North Korea and, and the consensus around anti-proliferation well, in general? The sanctions world has gone from being very simple and consensual to being complex and fragmented. I think the direction of travel, everybody was more or less going in the same direction on sanctions, let's say, 10 years ago. You know, we, we wanted Iran to give up their nuclear ambition, we wanted Iran to come to the negotiating, negotiating table. We wanted DPRK to do likewise. And then, of course, sanctions apply in lots of other cases. But in this specific area, there seemed to be a good element of consensus. Over time, that has clearly shattered. The obvious example of that is the withdrawal of the United States from the Joint Comprehensive Plan of Action, aka the, the nuclear deal, which has now created this fissure across the Atlantic. So you've got traditional allies generally pulling in the same direction on sanctions, suddenly finding that there are, are differences of opinion, different operating methods. The E3, Germany, France and the UK trying to come up with some kind of mechanism to continue trade with Iran despite the reversal of the US position. That's just a microcosm or one example of the fragmentation that has occurred generally. Alongside that, you've got other countries which are starting to realise that using sanctions is a good way of bullying neighbours or expressing their dissatisfaction. So as a financial institution, what used to be a clear monochrome picture is now very pixelated, highly complicated. If you're a sanctions officer or if you're a compliance officer in this field, you earn your paycheck each month because no two days are the same. Anti-proliferation is something that everybody can kind of agree on. Yes, that's right. I mean, there's another UN Security Council resolution which we have to always recall, which is Security Council Resolution 1540, which was the requirement of member states to prevent the 
acquisition by non-state actors of proliferation material, including related to finance. So I think the international community is generally in agreement that the proliferation of WMD is a bad idea. And indeed, when we go around the world talking in various countries, we often get asked the question, well, hmm, but aren't there countries like the United States, the UK, France, China that have their own weapons of mass destruction and nuclear weapons? Why aren't they giving those up? You know, why are they going around the world lecturing people? We get into discussions about the non-proliferation treaty and all of that if we go down that road. But the point is, we need to prevent financing of proliferation, i.e. the expansion of these kinds of weapons programs to other countries. There should be an expectation that all countries are pulling in the same direction on meeting this objective. But implementation around the world, as demonstrated by the FATF evaluations, is highly variable. And, of course, where you have gaps in implementation, you have opportunities for abuse, and that's precisely what Korea is very effectively exploiting. For the financial institutions that are in countries where there's a push and a pressure to stop proliferation, how are they doing? We're here at this conference, and there was a poll. Who knew what about proliferation? And there wasn't a high IQ on that kind of expertise within financial firms. We're here in Singapore. Singapore was one of the first places we came to for our RUSI research in 2015. What is clear is that there is much greater awareness amongst financial institutions and indeed amongst the supervisory authorities here than there was back then. So that's the good news. In the speech from the director from the MAS, she referred extensively to proliferation finance. The MAS has published guidance on proliferation finance. So all of that is happening. Now, I think we would argue that that should have happened in 2012 when FATF added this to standards. But anyway, never mind. Better late than never. The challenge, of course, now is that banks need to figure out what all this means and how do banks get smart and indeed other financial institutions, how do they get smart? And so the poll that you're referring to is we polled people and asked, do you read the UN panel of expert reports to get smart on CPF? Do you read those? They come out twice a year. They are a gold mine of information on North Korean sanctions evasion tactics. And 58% of people basically said, no, uh, and where can I find it, or something like that. 58% of people here, 58 very honest uh, percent people. That's not a good number, but it's an awful lot lower than you would find in many other parts of the world, and indeed, slightly less. You take that as a sign of progress. Yeah, when we were here again, I think we were here in 2017, and we did a less scientific poll, fewer number of people, but really only a couple of people in a room of 30 put their hands up. Clearly, there is greater awareness, no doubt there's greater awareness. I mean, of course, we had the Kim-Trump summit not far from where we're sitting right now last year, so no one can be under any illusion that Singapore is alive to the, uh, to the issue. But once you've got these reports, what do you do with them? What do you do with the names in them? Who's going to extract those names, mm-hmm. put them into screening systems, into transaction monitoring systems? What are you going to do? But at the very least, it's absolutely required reading, that report. It comes out twice a year, and it really doesn't take that long to digest what's in it to get a sense of what North Korea has been up to in the last 6 to 12 months. What are the things that financial institutions are missing? Only 10% of people said that there was a specific CPF expertise. That doesn't surprise me. The majority said it was in the mix, in the general sort of financial crime compliance team. And that's fine as long as it really is, as long as it's not by default. If it's nowhere else, it must be in the general team. I mean, I'm aware of a number of banks that are developing specific CPF expertise. That's admirable, obviously. I don't think that's necessarily required. I think what is required is just making sure that when you're putting on your sort of KYC head, you're also bolting in the proliferation finance bit of the brain that says, okay, let's look at this customer, not just as how might they be a front for money laundering or could they be involved in terrorist financing, but 
is their business the kind of business that North Korea might like access to in order to procure the material that they need for their weapons program? As I described in the conference, I think you need to make sure that when you're looking at your customer base and your transactions, you put on your proliferation finance glasses from time to time and just say, okay, with all my other sets of glasses on, this looks normal. But if I put on my PF glasses, is there anything different about what I see? And the answer in some cases will be Yes, of course. Some financial institutions are more exposed to the danger of being used in some way for yeah. proliferation. No, that's absolutely right. I mean, the way that we try and break it down when we talk to financial institutions is to say, think about where you sit in the world. You're sitting in Singapore, North Korea is just up the road, you're a trading hub. So there are lots of reasons why Singapore, a place like Hong Kong, would find themselves at risk of touching financial transactions related to North Korea's WMT. So that's the first thing. Think about your business lines. Do you have a trade finance business? Do you have a lot of clients who are shipping companies or, or companies that are single-use owning one ship? So again, think about your business profile. And very quickly, and this is something we'll be publishing very quickly, you can make a risk assessment of your profile as an industry, your profile as a country, and your profile as a region when it comes to proliferation finance What's uh, that going to be titled again? Well, it's just basically going to be a risk assessment tool on assessing proliferation finance risk. And the reason we're producing it is because... Not necessarily a report, or it'll be in a report that It will a be in a report. Assessment. Yeah, okay. it'll be an online report, uh, like all our work at RUSI, available, uh, freely available on, online. But the point is that the, the Financial Action Task Force requires countries to conduct a money laundering and terrorist finance risk assessment. It doesn't require them to conduct a proliferation finance risk assessment. There's an asymmetry in the system. What we're hoping is that people will say, OK, I'm going to go a bit further than I have to, according to FATF. I'd quite like to get a sense of what my risks are. And these are the kinds of questions, as I just mentioned, that would be in this risk assessment imposed by that tool. And hopefully then countries can get a sense of, you know, are they a red light, are they an amber light, or are they a, are they a green light? Can we talk a bit about typologies? What kinds of things have you seen? How is North Korea financing itself? You need to break down, again, back to the point I was making about your risk assessment. Where do you sit in the world? So if you sit in sub-Saharan Africa, you're probably not creating components that North Korea wants. But what you are is you are a source of revenue. You have police forces that need training. You have former Soviet tanks or weapon systems that need servicing. And North Korea provides excellent after-sales care and excellent training, and that's where they earn their money. Now, how do they do that? They have embassies in countries around the world, like any country, and those diplomats are first and foremost trade representatives and secondly diplomats. They are there to make money. So if you have a North Korean embassy in your country, you need to be aware that the United Nations restricts, by Security Council resolution, one bank account per embassy per country and one bank account per accredited diplomat per country. So that's the picture in, so that's a typology picture, let's say, in that part of the world. In Southeast Asia, well, here, you know, big trading hub, look out of the window of the hotel and all these ships out there. Do we understand what's in every container? So as a financial institution, you need to at least make sure you understand the activities of your customers. Now, as the sanctions have got more complex, more and more industries have been brought into that circle in order to frustrate North Korea. So insurance, you mentioned, is one of them, a paper we published last year called Underwriting Proliferation, looked at the way in which the insurance industry addresses sanctions risk. We've obviously heard a lot about ship-to-ship -ship transfer, so fuel being transferred onto ships that then go on to supply North Korea. Ship-to-ship -ship transfers are a common mechanism, but 
when ships are turning off their tracking systems and obfuscating their movements, you've got to wonder why they're doing that. So that's another typology to look out for. All this knowledge and understanding is available in the UN panel reports, which we commend to anybody who's interested in the topic to read. How much is having really tight money laundering controls, prevention in place? How much does that clone on to anti-proliferation? Yeah, so one zooms out for a second. What are banks trying to do? Banks are trying to understand who their customers are, what their customers are doing, and looking out for any deviations from that norm. If you do that job properly, and it's easy for me to sit here and say that, if you do that job properly, then whatever bad activity your customer is up to, you should be able to identify it. But of course, the bad guys don't sit still. The bad guys know that they're on sanctions list. The bad guys know what screening activity is undertaken by banks. And so they will try and hide using shell companies. They'll try and say that they're in one kind of business. And actually Mentis, ask something about shell companies and do they enter into uh, embassy accounts and everything? No, so there are lots of commonalities between all forms of financial crime, whether right. it's proliferation finance, money laundering or anything else. And shell companies, they are the go-to item on the shelf uh, when you want to try and hide your tracks. So absolutely, there are many commonalities. And we wouldn't sit here and say that proliferation finance is an entirely different discipline. There's lots of overlap, but there are also issues that are peculiar to proliferation finance that one needs to be aware of if you don't want to get caught out as a bank, an insurance company, a commodity broker, or anyone else who is part of the activity-based sanctions issued by the United Nations. This is a worthy cause and purpose, and you're continuing to do research. We will continue to invest time, effort, and resource into this. We've got a paper coming out, which we're calling Working Title Securing Supply Chain, which again is looking at this whole issue of commodities traveling across the world to North Korea. What are the weaknesses in the supply chain? We've got an updated version of our banking guide coming out that will try and address some of these challenges posed by more recent sanctions. The fundamental issue is we got off to a very slow start in 2012. We've been playing catch-up. And unfortunately, whilst the international community was twiddling its thumbs, it was an exhausting bit of work getting proliferation finance included in FATF standards. North Korea didn't sit still. So we're playing catch-up. That's the first thing I'd say. But there is hope. This year, the US are presidents of FATF and proliferation finance is one of their three priorities. And you know, we know when the U.S. puts its mind to things, things, things happen. We would hope that by the time the U.S. presidency finishes in July, we will see some advancement at FATF on the question of proliferation finance. We're going in the right direction, but we need to move line abreast, coordinated across the world, because again, gaps will be exploited. And what we're trying to do is identify gaps and propose policy recommendations that fill the gaps and strengthen the system. So basically to say that you're optimistic right now that you're making ground in this fight, not least because perhaps there was some neglect and we'll see where we go from here up until this time. Yeah. There's some uh, neglect around this issue. Yeah, I think we're optimistic. I think if you look in my passport, my colleague's passport, the number of visa stamps we have suggests that we're trying as hard as we can to raise awareness around the world. There are other NGOs like ours who are doing likewise. So we're all at it. What we need is the financial community and governments to come together, recognize where the gaps are, and then together we can fill them. Well, I think this is something for the financial community that's a little bit like anti-human trafficking, and it touches a chord, makes analysts out there feel like they're doing something that has an impact on the world in a, in a good way. You only have to show somebody a range chart of North Korean missiles. I remember with a colleague giving a presentation in South Africa, and as luck would have it, 
the range of North Korean missile will just reach South Africa. So we're all in it together, is precisely your point. A great point to make as we conclude. Thanks so much, Tom, for taking this time to talk. My pleasure. If you'd like to hear more podcasts like this, subscribe to Apple Podcasts or Spotify and get each episode each month of Financial Crime Matters. Because financial crime does matter to me and to you. Thanks for listening, everyone.